Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So it's October 2nd, 2020, and after this week's presidential debate, it seems like dissatisfaction with the political system is is really on everybody's mind. We want to ask, what options do the political parties offer us? How well do our parties represent our citizens? And here to help us address these questions and think specifically about how they apply to Black voters is today's guest. We're, We're delighted to welcome Ted Johnson to this show. Ted Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. His work explores the role that race plays in electoral politics, issue framing, and disparities in policy outcomes. Previously, he was a national fellow at New America and a research manager at Deloitte. He's a retired commander in the U.S. Navy following a two-decade career that included service as a White House fellow, military professor at the U.S. Naval War College, and speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, Atlantic, New York Times Magazine, Wall Street Journal, National Review, and Politico, among others. He teaches law and public policy and is currently working on a book about national solidarity and race relations. So welcome very much to to the show, Ted Johnson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so what we really want to talk about here is you've written this fascinating essay in the New York Times Magazine about why Black voters tend to vote as a bloc, even as the community includes varied ideologies and experiences and perspectives. Do you want to give us a little overview of your argument in the piece and maybe talk a little bit about what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so the piece kind of tries to make sense of why we have seen such uniform voting behavior among Black voters, basically since there was such a thing as a Black voter uh, after the Civil War. And this has been a question that's always been of interest to me. I sort of lead off the article talking about my parents and their partisan affiliations. My father identified as a Republican, my mother as a Democrat, but that their politics weren't really that far apart. And it had more to do with the weight they placed on certain conservative or progressive ideologies and that sort of determined where they where they uh, landed in their partisan affiliation. And I think, especially for my father, some of that was just uh, wanting to be a little contrarian, frankly, and not be uh, so, you know, uh, be pigeonholed by what the world thought black people, who they are, what they believe, and and who they affiliate with. And there's some some family history sort of mixed in there, too. But the, so the piece kind of talks about growing up in a home where partisan diversity wasn't that big of a deal. Where political diversity, um, even for for all the views my parents shared, there were absolutely sticking points. Uh, And so political diversity was quite familiar. In barbershops and beauty salons and the churches, all these were black spaces that I grew up in. uh, And there was tons of political diversity. And yet every time I hear, as an adult, uh, the world talk about black voters, it's that they vote Democrat. There's really no story here. The only thing that matters is how many of them are going to get off the couch and go vote because uh, we already know what, they're, what choice they're going to make on Election Day. So the piece tries to make sense of this voting behavior over the course of history. And it essentially divides Black voting behavior up into three eras and three sort of guiding ideologies, uh, but with one central principle. And that is that black voters, ever since they've been given the franchise, have always voted for the party that was promoting stronger civil rights protections and or against the party that provided safe harbor for white segregationists, 
veterans of the Confederate War or, you know, just flat out racists um, who didn't believe that, you know, the social hierarchy should be disrupted. So with that sort of governing principle for how Black voters approach American politics, uh, necessarily given the American history, uh, I think the, the first sort of chunk of the piece talks about the 19th century, uh, the latter part of the 19th century, after the Civil War, where we get the sweep of 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that get rid of slavery, establish citizenship, and then say that you can't deny folks the right to vote based on certain characteristics, including race, ethnicity, previous status of servitude, etc. So suddenly we have these Black voters, formerly enslaved Black people, who are now voters in the South, and all men, and they, about 90% of the Black population in the United States lives in the South. And so these men are now changing state politics. And the debate that's happening between the anti-slavery Republican Party at the time and sort of the burgeoning Democratic Party in some states like Virginia, it's the conservative party. But these are essentially, this becomes the party of white segregationists on the civil rights race question. And these Black voters are all voting Republican. And the question isn't about equality necessarily, it's more of a philosophical difference about the place of Black people in America. So certainly equality is wrapped up in that, but this isn't about very specific socioeconomic things. This is about a general worldview. Are Black people, are social, political, economic, civic equals or not? And one party said um, it sort of leaned to closer to yes, but not totally. And one party leaned more closely to no in a little more absolute manner. And that is why we saw a Black monolith emerge after the Civil War, after the 15th Amendment, almost immediately because of how polarized the parties were on the question of the status of Black folks in America. And so very quickly sort of tying together the next two sections of the piece and of sort of the, the thinking, in the early and mid 20th century, we see political expedience becoming uh, how parties position themselves around black voters. Jim Crow has disenfranchised the vast majority of black voters in the nation. The Great Migration redistributes black people across the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the Midwest, and some out West. And so now by 1950, 1960, about 40% of black Americans are outside of the South in areas where they can now vote, certainly at a higher rate. And they're changing local and state politics as they arrive in these new areas and creating tensions with those folks that were already there. And so Republicans at the state and local level court them, Democrats beginning to do the same thing. And we see the uh, governing principle for these parties at the time uh, seem to, when it comes to black people, seem to be about how to marshal the electoral power that is moving into these cities and states in the North and Midwest in order to win state and local office. Republicans are, are better than Democrats in some places and Democrats, Northern Democrats are better than Republicans and others, but Southern Democrats want no part of any of it. And the Republican Party was pretty weak in the South during this period. So now Black voters are a matter of political expedience. Who, how can they help us win elections? And from 1948 to 1968, we get this massive uh, set of, of judicial, executive, and legislative you know, holdings and orders and, and laws that reconfigure American society and desegregate a lot of uh, institutions and processes and stuff in, in America from the desegregation of the military, the federal workforce and 48 by Truman through the Fair Housing Act of 68 signed by Lyndon Johnson. And so that sort of defines that period and we can talk about that more. And then the latter part where I think we are now is where as many of you have written about and, and other scholars that race and party has become dangerously entangled 
with our identities, where partisan identity is accompanying the racialization of the parties. And I see this as uh, especially problematic because now when something is seen as good for black people or good for Democrats, it's seen not just as bad for Republicans or bad for white people in sort of this caricatured way, but a rejection of the Republican Party, a rejection of American culture or white culture, or whatever these, these stereotypical views are. And so now partisan conflicts turn into racial conflicts, which are a rejection of people based on their partisan identities and their racial identities in a way that feels a lot like maybe late 19th century, but not a lot necessarily like the politics of the latter part of the 20th century. And this is, I think, it helps explain some of the polarization that we're seeing both ideologically and partisanship, but also the racial polarization and uh, segregation we're seeing within the parties. So I'll kind of stop there, but the common thread through this is that black folks voted as a monolith in the 19th century after they were given the right, or black men anyway, before it was taken away. They voted mostly as a monolith in the early and mid 20th century, less about three or four presidential elections where the splits were 75, 25, 60, 40, from, uh, I, I don't know, maybe 40, 44, but then again, 52 to about 60. And then now it is a monolith because uh, the strong civil rights protections party is seen as the Democratic Party. And um, it's in the interest of one's personal interest as a black voter is tied to the group interest of black America. And that lends itself to monolithic voting behavior, despite any political diversity that might exist. I, um, I really enjoyed your piece, Ted, and I, uh, I encourage our uh, listeners to to check it out, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. And there's so much about this that I, I find fascinating, and I want to, and I'm really excited about this conversation today. But you know, your answer just now, really, you were really, you know, pushing all of my buttons in a good way. You know, you're talking about American political development. We're talking about philosophical things. We're talking about identities. I mean, this is I love this stuff. This is why this uh, podcast exists. And I think we need more efforts by people to explain what pretty much everyone takes for granted. I think that's we don't do that enough in our in our politics. And, and, and I think that's a really important thing. How did the world get to be the way it is? And I, I think that's really important. So thank you for that. But, you know, I want to take a step back here and I want to ask a debate. I mean, I want to ask you a question that I will hopefully get you to speculate a little bit as well, but to do so in a way that I think will enlighten our understanding about politics more generally. And that's in the sense of a this notion of persecuted brotherhood. And this is by no means unique to Black Americans. I think this is just this is something that is a phenomenon that has existed throughout history. But when you are a member of a of, of, of a persecuted brotherhood or conceive of yourself as such, um, that you stand apart from the world. And, and it's obvious and for very good reason, right? I mean, I think that there is, you know, we, we've been talking on this podcast and in our society now for a while about the systemic racism, about the impact of, of race on, in politics and all, all of these other things. But the mentality of persecuted brotherhood, and it's a, and it's a correct thing, I think. But, you know, even despite the heroic struggles we've seen to join that world I mean, this, as equals or to demand that that world accept you as equals. And by world, I mean, say, like politics, political society. Think of the civil rights movement. Think of the Black Lives Matter movement. There's in, obviously there's still lots of work to do. But here's the here's the thing. Here's what I want. I'm really fascinated by what I'm fascinated by and what I'd like you to speculate on. 
once you join that world as an equal, and by you, I don't mean you, I mean anybody. It could be a Southerner after the Civil War. It could be, you know, um, a, a, a Jewish person in Israel or in America or in Germany. I mean, it doesn't. But once you join that world as an equal, it becomes very difficult to maintain that sense of otherness, that sense of brotherhood, if you will. And so acknowledging in the current debate that we are far from getting to where we need to be and that we have a lot of work to do. And hopefully this podcast can help contribute to doing that work. Do you think that if in some future where all of a sudden America has, and not in a utopian way, but just kind of fully accepted Black Americans into the, the polity on an equal basis, how do you think that will impact the monolithic nature of the, of, of, of the Black American voting bloc? And well, you know, you mentioned civil rights, and and I think that's correct. But I mean, does it maintain its kind of otherness in, in in shifting to other issues, or does the monolithic nature of that voting block kind of disappear, if you will? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, I'm I'm kind of coming at it from lots of different ways, but I'm intrigued by this question. And what are the consequences of that for Black Americans too? Sorry. Right. No. So you're absolutely right. So I I have so I I went into my doctoral dissertation process saying. If there was a way to break up the black monolith, would that suggest that we've now reached a place of equality where black folks feel comfortable and safe enough to vote according to their ideology and not according to some other concern like like group safety or, or, or you know for, for a turning everything into a single issue direct democracy referenda on on, uh, on civil rights. And I don't know the answer to that, but but my sense is if the if the monolith ever dissipates, if we start to see 60-40, 70-30 splits between black voters on in presidential congressional elections, I think that signals that our democracy has created less space for racial polarization or for weaponizing racial tensions. I don't know what that means that civil rights is no longer the primary concern or if the, like the, the electoral and political solidarity dissipates and the only thing left in Black America is a sort of social or cultural solidarity. But I do think we get a better kind of government, a better kind of electoral process if that monolith uh, is not voting 90-10, 95-5 in presidential and congressional elections. And so I, the only evidence I have to suggest that America would be a better place with less of a monolith, um, it's, it's sort of there's just like a historical perspective, and then there's the the sort of uh, the caveat that I'll call out at the very end. But quickly, the you know I, I mentioned in the late 30s, the 40s, into the 50s, we saw these splits. I mean, Richard Nixon in 1960 gets 32 percent of the black vote against Kennedy. Eisenhower in 56, I think he gets something like you know 39, 40 percent of, of the black vote. Now, of course, these these are Black voters in the North, which are not even a majority of Black people in the country, voting eligible Black men in the country because of Jim Crow rules in the South. But a 60-40 split in a presidential election in 1956 for Democrat, Republican among Black voters is not insignificant. And I don't think it's insignificant that Eisenhower sent uh, the 101st Airborne into Little Rock, Arkansas to desegregate the school on the order of Brown v. Board. I don't think it's insignificant that Brown v. Board was a 9-0 decision, uh, thanks to some cajoling on the Supreme Court by the Chief Justice. I don't think it's insignificant that Truman desegregated the federal workforce and the military in 48, and that he wins the 48 election, really thanks to Black voters in, in Illinois and Ohio. So the thing I draw from this is that when the Black vote is contested, 
that racial progressive policy tends to be a, either a direct or a byproduct of that contestation. And so I would like to see more contests for black voters because it would suggest that the nation is pushing forward ideas, policy statutes, you know, judicial rulings that create a more equal society that not only tries to close the gap in contemporary lived experiences, but addresses some of the historical disparities as well. Here's the caveat and then I'll, I'll be quiet. The electoral, the power, the electoral power of the black monolith has accomplished a lot. And so to say diluting that power or to, or to dismantle that monolith creates a better America, betrays the fact that much of this better America we have today is because black folks behaved with political and electoral solidarity. Uh, and so even in those, those few elections where um, there was more of a split and, and good things happened, the only reason the split was possible was because of the monolith that preceded it, that compelled our democratic institutions to be responsive for one reason or another to the electoral power and, and the, the, you know, the lived experiences of black folks. So it's a double-edged sword, um, but I do think on, the, on net, a, a less monolithic black electorate is a good sign for this American experiment. Lee? Uh, I'm gonna jump here, jump in here. And uh, Ted, I'm hoping you can kind of help us figure out where we are in this particular political moment in thinking about the power of black voters. So, yeah, and I want to put you a little bit in conversation with Paul Freimer's work here on Blacks the Captured group. And, you know, as you well know, his argument is that because Blacks really only have one party to vote for, and because most whites are, uh, whites are the majority and whites have very different interests politically than blacks, that the Democratic Party is always going to take those black voters for granted, try to make them somewhat invisible and appeal to white swing voters. And, you know, but then what are, what are black voters going to do? Are they going to vote for Republicans? No. And, you know, I mean, obviously he wrote his book before Obama became president and, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in this election cycle about the crucial need for Democrats to make sure that they get black voters to turn out and get excited about this election. And, you know, I think there was a very clear sense that Biden was the best candidate for black voters if they wanted to elect a president. And certainly, even though he himself was not black, in part because, you know, I think a lot of black voters felt like you know, white voters are kind of racist and they'll elect the white guy, but they probably won't elect Kamala Harris. Uh, I, I don't know if that's if that's your sense as well. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I think there there are a lot more white liberals now than there were 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago. And there is a sense that Democrats actually need black voters in key swing states to turn out. So it is, are, are Blacks still a captured group within the Democratic Party, or do they have more power now to shift the sort of orientation and policy structure of the Democratic Party? Or are we going to see the same thing if Democrats win and get the trifecta that, you know, Democrats are not going to want to go particularly strong on some of the racial justice issues that have sort of animated the, the Black Lives Movement and the protest movement? Or is the Black Lives Movement not even fully representative 
of the entire black community because too many of us think of the black community as a block and think that they must be represented by Black Lives Matter when really there's a lot more heterogeneity among black voters. So hell, I feel like I'm quite confused. I hear a lot of stuff in a lot of different directions that this is a transformational moment in American politics because the, the Black Lives Movement protests have been supported in many white communities, but I also hear that this is the high water mark and as soon as Democrats try to do something on racial justice, there'll be a tremendous backlash among the, a lot of the white moderates who who had previously supported Black Lives protests when it when it was sort of a protest against Trump. So help me think through this and help all of us because I'm 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 really confused as to what's going on right now. Yeah. So electoral capture. Um, I think generally speaking, the argument still holds. But I want to preface everything with. A quote from Ron Brown, who was the, uh, the, the DNC chair in 92, and he says, you know, the view is that black voters have nowhere else to go, but blacks always have somewhere else to go. They can go fishing. And so the idea of electoral capture is that black voters have only two choices, a Republican Party that doesn't want them or a Democratic Party that takes them for granted. And so they go with the Democratic Party, even though they're taken for granted because they, the Republican Party is just not a viable option, as, as you described. But that binary choice is, is a false choice, because as we saw in 2016, when there was a seven-point drop-off in Black voter turnout, sometimes the decision is to not engage in electoral politics. And this can be perceived as self-defeating, but that's only if you think that politics only happens in the voting booth. And we all know that's, that's not the case. So here's how I would answer. Um, I do think the Black electorate, Black voters are still technically a captured electorate. But I think Black America is not. Um, this is not to say that the Republican Party has a better chance of winning over Black Americans, um, and say they, there's a massive transformation in how they approach the um, Black voters and, and you know, really voters at large uh, in their appeals. But it is that when Black voters or when Black people are dissatisfied with its government, with the, the state of politics, with, with its politicians, protest is a viable option. And it's because protest has proven to work, especially um, if civil rights has become the, the sort of totem for what successful protest looks like. So the fact that Black Lives Matter arises under a Black presidency isn't surprising. In electoral capture, Black political behavior in a, war, in a nation where a Black president presides would seem to be at its height. And protests would be unnecessary because you sort of evidenced your, black, your electoral power by electing this, helping elect this Black man to the presidency. And now you have his ear and can translate all of that influence and electoral power into policy gains. And Black Lives Matter arose not just in response to some of the confrontations between Black communities and law enforcement, but also because of a dissatisfaction with how not progressive President Obama's presidency was relative to the, the hopes and dreams of a certain segment of the Black electorate. And most of those folks that were displeased with the lack of progress, or at least not the boldness of the, of the progress under the Obama administration in terms of, of race, maybe some socioeconomic things as well, they make up the heart of, of the Black Lives Matter movement who tended to be younger, tended to be more progressive. And so in 2012, the under 30 black voter drops off by 10% and Barack Obama is still on the ballot. It's the over 45 more conservative black voter that increases turnout from 2008 to 2012 
that really sends black voter turnout to its highest rate in, in decades. So that's 12. And then in 16, without Barack Obama on the ballot, there's a, you know, a seven point drop off in turnout. So now the question is about turnout. When we think about black, the black electorate today, it is not whether or not they're going to, to vote for the Democrat or the Republican in the election, in the general election. The question is how many are going to show up to do so? The question is about electoral share and it's about turnout participation. And we got a sense of black political behavior and sort of the electoral calculus in the primary where we had two dozen people running across ages, across socioeconomic status, races, ethnicities, et cetera. And black voters by and large chose the safe moderate choice because uh, Biden seemed to be the most electable, his campaign was viable. And um, in wanting to sort of in, in an exercise of pragmatism, you don't want to waste your vote on maybe the person you like best or the person most proximate to your politics. You want to use your vote for the person you think can beat the Republican candidate because party identity and racial identity suggest that the best thing for the group and for you, the best thing for the group is the best thing for you and the best thing for the group is to beat the other party and Biden sort of checks boxes for a number of reasons that other candidates didn't. But now that we get into the general, black voters will largely coalesce around for the Democratic nominee as they have for five decades. But how many is the question? And I'll end on this. I, when the question about black people in America voting on election day is only about will they show up and not about have the parties made appeals to them? Are they given the agency of choice or the luxury of choice between two competitive viable candidates, acceptable candidates. And when, when that conversation isn't happening and it's just, are they gonna show up or not? Then the electoral power I think is diminished that the block brings. Their ability to turn that power into policy gains under the new presidency or certain or new Congress is diminished. And frankly, the rest of the electorate is beginning to see the same things in the parties that black folks have been experiencing for decades, which is that there's really not much of a choice here because the parties are so far apart. And so now it's about which side can get their people to the polls more instead of having swing voters anymore or, or folks that will uh, can be one over to one side or the other based on policy discussions and a and, uh, certain agenda. So I want to actually take us back into some of the history that you reference in the piece because it provides a lot of fascinating context. And there is a line that really stood out to me about compromise that you wrote. You talk about how for the first century of the country, compromise for Black Americans meant a euphemism for prying natural and constitutional rights away from from this group. And so I, I wanted to see if you would talk a little bit more about that. And, and specifically, I was really drawn into your comparison with the election of 1876, or your reference to that, which it kind of keeps coming up as a parallel for the messiness that we might see in November. And, and you look at how that compromise resolved the election and, and what the implications were for Black Americans. Can you reflect a little bit on that? That line, um, I had to fight, by the way, to keep that one in. It, it was, I had all these little pithy things that, you know, made me sound smart and funny, and a lot of it got stripped out. So I'm, I'm glad that that one's stuck in there, because I thought that was just such a, a very concise way of talking about the major political deals that happened in the 19th century, where slavery was the central issue of the compromise and that the folks making the compromise were not enslaved. You know, these were people making decisions on behalf of other people and how much of the rights and principles 
entrenched in our founding documents, sort of in, in the American canon, how much of those things touched, reached down to, to Black Americans was the, the, the negotiating thing. That, those were the chips on, on the table. So, it, you know, the, it, it talks about the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Missouri Compromise, the Compromise of 1850, Compromise of 1877. All these compromises were really about do Black people matter or not? Should be, you know, how much should they be included in our society? How many, if any, rights should be extended to them? And the Compromise of 1877 is the one, I think is, to me, that one is, I don't want to say it's the worst, but it's, it's distinct because it's the only one that's post-Civil War. All the other ones took place beforehand. And this is after, you know, the, the largest conflict that ever happened on our soil, over a million casualties. We're only a decade out from the end of this. The president's been assassinated. And all of these sacrifices that led to the end of slavery are now on the table in a contest for the White House. And, and so, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it, but quickly, you know, the Compromise of 1877 is about the presidential election of 1876, where Rutherford B. Hayes, Republican out of Ohio, was running against Samuel Tilden, Democrat out of New York. Tilden is winning the popular vote. The Electoral College, however, no one has reached the requisite number. Something like 19 or 20 Electoral College votes are in dispute, and all but one are in former slaveholding states. And the disputes about which set of electoral ballots submitted by the states are getting counted. I mean, I think my understanding of it is that the, the advantage was in the Republicans' favor, but that was contested. Uh, and so the compromise was that the Democratic Party would stop contesting these disputed electoral college votes and allow them to be given to Rutherford B. Hayes, making him president in exchange for the removal or the disempowering of federal troops in the South that were enforcing the, the new federal laws put in place after the Civil War to protect the rights of the newly freed, formerly enslaved Black folks. And so the removal or disempowering of those federal troops allowed a resumption of states to take control of their political and cultural social destinies. And that began the, the era of, uh, of sort of disenfranchising these newly enfranchised folks and there's a bunch of terrorism that takes place and lots of violence and Jim Crow comes onto the scene. And so it, it is essentially that the presidency is traded for black folks' rights in the South, or at least the protection of those rights from those states that would look to deny them. And that is a really unfortunate period in American history or, or decision. Uh, the Reconstruction, for all its faults, was a really good opportunity for us to right the wrongs of the previous decades. And this compromise stalls that progress. And as the redeemers in the, in the South begin to recapture power in state assemblies and in state office and, and at local levels, and then you get these white citizen councils and the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, and Jim Crow laws that come in over the next few decades, black folks are essentially subjugated to third, to second and third class citizenship just decades after the Civil War. And so this term compromise is a way of showing the, that sometimes political expedience and access to political and economic power trumps even the most meaningful and, and gory and uh, transformational sacrifices the nation has put itself through and that the gains made during those periods don't stick 
when there's an opportunity to to hoard more power for one party or the other. That really struck me because in your essay, you wrote something that I, I don't think I've actually ever read anyone write in so many words, which was that Hayes could have made a different decision or that, that that could have been a different a different outcome that you know you often see this depicted in terms of a kind of inevitability that that reconstruction ended in this way i mean look leadership is hard and a lot of people who try to do the courageous things are not deified afterwards uh, you know many of them uh, and they're not even even if they're killed they're not even they don't even turn out to be martyrs uh, so being courageous, especially in a point and, and, and willing to sacrifice everything when you're in a place of power or on the cusp of it is not an easy decision to make. Lincoln, the greatest president we've had, I don't know that too many historians disagree with, with that, uh, but he, it wasn't like he had this epiphany in 1860 about the humanity of black folks. Uh, there were a number of proposals on the table to try to reconcile the nation, including sending black folks to Africa or to the Caribbean, or uh, you know, finding other ways of getting rid of this race problem other than abolishing slavery. But the fact that he eventually did issue the Emancipation Proclamation, the fact that he did take the nation to war over secession, over the question of slavery, is worthy of praise. And those decisions are not easy ones to be made. So Hayes, frankly, made the easy decision. He made the pragmatic decision but it was a, a decision that was extremely consequential. And had he made a different choice then, you know, frankly, had Dewey made a different choice in 1948 about courting black voters, had Goldwater made a different choice in 1964 about uh, opposing the Civil Rights Act of, of 64, hell, had Colin Powell made a different choice in 1996 about running for office, I think all of these could have been things that disrupted the black monolithic behavior we see in elections today. But for various reasons, and I'll leave Powell out of this, that's just sort of a hypothetical, but for, for various pragmatic reasons, winning office was more important than clinging to the, the moral principles that were pushing us toward racial equality. And, uh, and instead, a lot of our leaders routinely made the choice to take the, the pragmatic decision of just winning office. The, the last little breath on this is that there is a case to be made that maybe winning office should be the primary goal, because once you're in office, you can affect all of the changes you want to see that had you espoused them prior to the election may have prevented you from winning in the first place. When the founders founded our nation, they chose unity over getting rid of slavery because we had colonies that were saying, if this slavery thing's on the table, we're not gonna be a part of this. When the Constitutional Convention happened in 1787, states were willing to walk away from the convention over the issue of slavery. So these compromises were about national unity under the understanding for those on the progressive side of the race question, that if we can keep the nation together, then we have the space to, to create more racial equality. If we stand on our principle on this, there may not be a nation left to save and we'll be fragmented. And that leads to a whole different set of concerns and, uh, and different futures. Can, can I just follow up on, on this point? Because I think it's, it's so interesting. And I mean, I, I love these counterfactuals. And my, my personal favorite counterfactual is what if Nixon had made the call to uh, to Coretta Scott King in in 1960 instead of JFK and and if Republicans had become the party of civil rights which I, I think is totally plausible but you know I mean it seems like the the broad story of racial politics in America is that there every now and then there's these moments in which one party has this really strong majority that can allow it to 
enact this large uh, scale racial justice program, franchisement of, of, of blacks. But because there has been so much racial animus on behalf of the white majority, that it's just an unsustainable long term position. So, I mean, you could say that, the you know, maybe Hayes would have made a different compromise in 1876 or the election would have gone differently. But seems like it's hard for one party to build this this broad coalition of blacks and white liberals, or it has been historically hard. Maybe 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 something's different now. So I'd love to get your get your quick thoughts on, on that and then let let James jump in with a question. Yeah. So so here's the thing. And so you're absolutely right. If and and this is certainly, I think, political strategists have were, were thinking about this in the 19th century, certainly in the early 20th century. The more progressive we are on civil rights, the more likely we are to lose a certain segment of our white voters who reject our position on civil rights. And both parties were having this conversation in the 1920s at the local and state level up north, all the way through nationally through the, the 60s at the conventions, et cetera. But two things happened in 48 and 68 that I think are instructive to this, this question and to the point. Both of those presidential election years, there are third party candidates that run. And those third party candidates are running basically on the preservation of segregation. 48, you have Strong Thurmond, and in 68, you've got uh, George Wallace. And these are nothing but disaffected Southern Democrats who are Democrats on economic policy, but not necessarily Democrats, not necessarily akin to Northern Democrats on social policy around civil rights. So in another world, that would just have been a third party. And neither one of the parties, Republicans or Democrats, would have sought to court those white segregationists and bring them into their party so that they can win elections. In a more principled world, both parties would have said, we don't want racists in our party. You know, we just fought two world wars where Black Americans served honorably, never mind Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, white immigrants from less favored European countries. And in 68, we'd just gone through a decade where RFK had been assassinated, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, JFK had been assassinated, the Vietnam War is ongoing, there's riots happening in urban areas across the country, and they could have said racism is a problem. This is not something we want to feed, but instead they chose to court those disaffected Southern white Democrats as a way to win elections. And that was a choice. It was a pragmatic choice. It was a choice of political expedience, but I don't think it was a morally principled choice to choose to align yourself with folks that were actively working against our principles and our constitution, against the, the um, efforts of the civil rights movement against the, the point of the Civil War. And so those choices have fed a lot of the racial tensions we're seeing in the country today. And leaders at those times could have made different choices. And that third party maybe becomes a permanent third party of a far right racist party, or maybe it dissipates once it realizes that there's no path forward and that they either have to get on, you know, get with the times or, or, or exit the process altogether. That's a fascinating insight, and it gets actually to Ira Katz-Nelson's fabulous book. And guys, we really need to have Ira on as well. I think Ted's hitting a lot of these questions that that he tackles in that book too. And and one of the things that happens, uh, Fear Itself is the name of the book, and one of the things that happens, according to Ira, is that it's exactly what Ted just said. I mean, there's there's this kind of calculation that 
we have to win this great war for liberal democracy overseas by making a compromise, a practical compromise with the opponents of liberal democracy in a way, in, in certain aspects of life uh, here in America. And for people who think that the New Deal is, who idolize the New Deal, like uh, Katz Nelson says himself, it admits that that's a, that's a very tough thing to, to, to grapple with. And, and I, that's why I think his book is so, so fabulous as well. And sorry to talk about others on the podcast too, but because um, Ted, we're talking about your work today, but I want to shift now briefly from black Americans to white Americans and then circle back to black Americans. Today, at least it seems to me, or earlier this year, the attention to the disparate experience that black Americans have in American political life among white Americans was increasing. And that, that's, I think, a good thing. And white Americans were increasingly, and we've talked about this in past podcasts um, with other guests, were for whatever reason acknowledging and were willing to acknowledge the existence of systemic racism in our institutions. And there were increasing calls and efforts to address that systemic racism. And what's interesting to me is that that itself constitutes an implicit acknowledgement of the importance of those institutions to our politics and what happens inside those institutions to our politics. And here's the contradiction that I, I want to see if you can help me work out. Because at the same time, there's occur that this is all occurring when the commitment of white Americans to the you know, political activity and the locations of our political activity on our institutions, where that's meant to occur, appears to be increasing, or at least awareness of it for black Americans, their own commitment appears to be waning, or at least the way in which they understand political activity in our institutions appears to have changed to the extent that they no longer think that those institutions are necessarily as important. And think about, say, Congress. Think about the you know, struggles, just political struggles with a small P. Everything is shifting increasingly to the courts or to the application of expertise to, to resolve disputes as opposed to persuasion, bargaining, and negotiation among equals. And what strikes me as interesting about this is, is that when that happens, the institutions themselves no longer exist or no longer exist in the same way. Yes, they're still there on paper. But, you know, if people aren't acting inside Congress, it's kind of like, well, what's, you know, Congress doesn't really isn't there. And so here's this contradiction. We have these calls to fix our institutions and to tackle the systemic racism in them. But yet those calls are being um, uttered by the same people who appear to be less and less interested in those institutions themselves. And obviously, they're certainly related, right? I mean, one reason why you can be less interested in an institution is because it is systemically racist. I get that. But they ultimately are in contradiction with one another. And I know this is kind of out of left field, but how can we, how can we use your insights into Black voters and this idea of a Black monolith and, and our kind of systemic racism in politics today to better understand how we relate to our political institutions more broadly in this moment? Yeah, it's a so it's a tough question, and here's how I think about it. Um, so I, I generally think about, let's say we've got two groups of people. We've got those who are truth tellers, and we've got those who are bridge builders. And the truth tellers, their job is to tell you the uncomfortable truths, and if you and if it makes you feel bad and and all that, well, too bad. This is what's happened. This is what's real. And the point of it is to make you uncomfortable. Yeah, this is the, and sorry to interrupt, but this is the Frederick Douglass, you know, if there is no struggle, there is no progress um, kind of view, which I think it's actually true. Yeah. 
Right, right. And, and so, and, but then there are the bridge builders and the bridge builders are less interested in making you uncomfortable and more interested in finding where they can find consensus to get incremental change. And oftentimes, especially because of the way our media works and because of sort of the sensational nature of protest and the demands that, that protesters make, those two groups get, there, there's no distinction in them. And so we see the, the folks that demand change as the people that should deliver it. And so it's not enough for you to be an activist. You need to be an activist and then you need to get people to the polls and then you need to run for office and then you need to be able to persuade these institutions to create the change you've been fighting for your whole life. But I see those roles as distinctly different, um, but complementary. So Martin Luther King never ran for office and I think that's a good thing because the change he was able to create was by ex exerting external pressures on our systems, institutions, and processes and that creates space for people inside the process to create change. And yet the people inside the process could never do the things the people external to it could do because it would make them unpalatable to the process, institutions, et cetera. And so it's almost like the, the truth tellers who, who tend to, and you know, this is a broad construction, but that these are say your Black Lives Matter activists who wanna talk very explicitly and forthrightly about the, the effects of systemic racism they sort of are like a, they orient the actions of the bridge builders who may not, you know, the activists may say, we need reparations now. And the bridge builders will say, well, let's study the issue. And, and then we'll come back and formulate a way in policy or by statute or whatever to determine how to address this, this very real concern that our constituents are making aware of us. And so they, they sort of play off one another. The problem is those that are outside this system are really impatient with the slow pace of change that's happening within the system. A slow pace that's essentially written into our style of governance on purpose by, by the framers of the constitution. And those within the system are quite impatient with these large and in their view, unrealistic demands that are being made on them by people external to it because the way things happen largely are by a slow incremental change over decades. And, and so the patience is in, in the pragmatism and the sort of feasibility politics are much more real within the system and don't have a place, safe harbor external to it. And so I think what we're seeing um, in the nation at large, but a, a microcosm of it within the black community, and because of the solidarity experience within black America writ large, that tension just feels a lot more real. You were hard pressed to find people talking badly about Barack Obama from within the black community, um, except for maybe, you know, Cornell West here or Tavis Valley there until the second term. And the latter part of the second term, then all of a sudden you start to see essays wondering why he's not being talking more explicitly about race or Trayvon Martin or Philando Castile. Why is he not meeting with Black Lives Matter activists and delivering on their policy concerns? Why is he um, you know, willing to deal with a Republican Congress uh, that has basically set out from day one of his presidency to stop everything he wanted to do? And that impatience, we, we, that, that tension was certainly on display in the latter half of the Obama presidency. And I think we're getting another taste of it now. Look, I, I wrote years ago in the Atlantic about how the Congressional Black Caucus, if it didn't find a way to court these young protesters, was going to soon find that its political power only extends in the, to the halls of Congress and, um, and not far beyond. Maybe that's sufficient, but it, it rose to power. It became a powerful block within Congress because it became the conscience 
of Black America to Congress. They said that of Elijah Cummings, they've said that of John Lewis, and if this gap, generational gap, political gap continues to grow between the truth-telling version of Black America and the politically entrenched version of Black America in these institutions, then that can create some striations um, that won't be more than a shared experience of the civil rights generation as they have been in decades past, but may be a, a little weaker and uh, begin to fray. And I, I don't know what that pretends for, for the future of American politics. Well, that's a, a good note for us to transition into our final thoughts in this segment. Lee, do you want to uh, bring us home with the final question? Yeah, so I, I want to pick up, Ted, on, on what you were saying about the, uh, the George Wallace third party and, and, you know, what if that had been a third party? Obviously, I think a lot about what our country would look like as a multi-party system. And, you know, having read a lot of comparative literature, it seems that there's pretty universal agreement on the idea that a two-party majoritarian system is generally quite harmful to minority interests and minority representation. You know, and, and one of the arguments there in that strain of literature is you know, that it, it's, it's really hard for minority groups to have adequate representation in a, in a majoritarian system because they're never gonna make up a majority of one party. Um, you know, but there's two ways in which I, I want to kind of query that point. And one is the, the sort of isolating the racist point, um, you know, which is something that I, I think a lot about, right? Because we, we think about the, those as the key swing voters, and this is a tension that Democrats have been facing for a long time, is that the way to win is to court these sort of downscale whites who are economically populist, but like kind of racist in their views. And this was a fight that Democrats were having in post-2016, I think continue to have. And, but also, you know, that th there's another pushback, which is, you know, something, something like, oh, well, then we just have a black power party in America and that would be terrible. But, you know, I think your, your work and, and your, your analysis suggests that one, that we probably wouldn't because black voters are a lot more heterogeneous than the voting block that, that they have to be in the two-party system. So, you know, I, I sort of want to get your take on how you think black voting power would look in a multi-party system and whether you agree that we would then just have a kind of small white racist far-right party that, you know, would maybe be better and maybe we'd all be better off if if the two parties weren't trying to court this downscale, quote unquote, Obama Trump voter. I, I think um, so. I mean, I, I think ideally we would just have more parties. And um, but I don't think whether we have two parties, three or four, I think all of them should say, uh, oh, by the way, if you're racist, this isn't the place for you. We can like gather around environmental concerns or around the size of government or the you know how many regulations there should be on business but if you're here because you don't like hispanic people or if you're here because you think black people are dumb and lazy and wards of the state then this isn't the party for you even if you share our pro-life views so I, I think that is the issue that a willingness to embrace all sorts of different coalitions and not reject those that harbor racism outright or even super high levels of racial resentment is the problem. There are systemic problems, there are institutional issues. I mean, as you've written, the, the two-party system itself has its flaws, but my issue is that if you don't, if you create space for people to hold on to racist views, 
then um, your party becomes the racist party, or at least the party friendly to them. And that will mean over time, if not, you know, either short term or long term, that the people who are being discriminated against will not want to be part of your party. And that is the, as one of my political scientists' favorite ones say, is a doom loop. You know, you now racialize the parties, and no matter what your positions are on the economy, on energy, on taxes, on regulations, all of that is subjugated to the polarizing issue of race. So I think the, and this is sort of why earlier I said, you know, when the, when the black monolith breaks up, I think that's a good sign for our democracy because it suggests that there is, that, that racists now have no quarter, or if they do, they got to keep it in their house and they can't bring it to the party or the platform or their uh, explicit politics. Um, and I think it's, and it suggests that, uh, that people of color feel safe enough to now think about their political and partisan allegiances based on specific policies and specific values uh, around uh, uh, policy proposals. And I think that leads to more deliberation in our democracy, which I think is it's central to a healthier democracy. Uh, so I, I, the number of parties is, to me, is a, a question that runs second to where, on the, at least when it comes to the to civil rights or the race question, where do the racists go? And uh, if they start their own third party, I think that's bad. Uh, I think there has to be no place for them. And then the people have to make appeals or, or establish party platforms on things separate and apart from uh, their views on the, the racial hierarchy or, or you know, integration, segregation, or, or uh, you know, how, how to hoard resources for their group and at, at, to the exclusion of, of other racial groups. So I, I hope that answers the question. I don't know if I've gotten directly to it. I think that's I think that's really the conundrum that we face is exactly as you put it, where do the racists go? And I, I was trying to um make this point on a, a panel yesterday where we were talking about generally about the future of American democracy. And I keep coming back to this question with political parties about what what would it be different if we conceptualized the question of party politics and what goes on within parties as there's this segment of the electorate that is really motivated by racial animus and the history of party politics is attempting to uh, figure out what to do with that group while simultaneously needing and wanting to court their votes. Um, you know, what would happen if we if we thought about it that way? And so I think that what's really useful here and what you've done for us, Ted, is to kind of reframe some of these these issues that come up in electoral politics and really shine a light on the racial element and the implications for Black Americans of these choices, which often were were central at the time, but I think sometimes get lost in the in the history and the telling. And so I appreciate that, and I appreciate the idea of reflecting on the strategic kinds of of questions about Black voters as a monolith. What it, and what the implications are for better representation of, in this case, this historically marginalized group. So I think these questions, I don't have good answers to them, but I think that they are a crucial step to making our democracy better. And that's one of our goals here on Politics in Question, even when we don't all agree. And so um, I just want to thank you for, for joining us. And I think we'll leave it there. No, this is great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. 
This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.